So good evening to you all. I actually thought tonight that um, before I uh, give my talk proper, I, I wanted to just share a few thoughts on the topic of listening to Dharma talks generally, or the practice of, of listening to Dharma talks. So you might just begin by noticing, you know, what's present in the mind, how is the mind as you sit in expectation of a Dhamma talk this evening. Mm-hmm. And to remember that, uh, you know, when uh, we listen to a Dhamma talk, that we're, we're pre- predominantly listening to the Dharma doing the talking rather than the, the speaker. And that this, in a way, is not different from the practice that we're doing the rest of the day, that the Dharma is talking to us all the time when we listen to it. And uh, that fact is kind of reflected in some of the traditional formalities around uh, the way that Dharma talks are given. So like you'll notice when Bhante gives his talk, he starts by formally paying homage to the Triple Gem, or we might bow to the shrine and so forth. And as a reminder that actually, um, you know, we're, we're acting as a, a mouthpiece for this teaching. It's not really uh, about the speaker. It's about allowing the teaching to come through. And the teaching that comes through to you also depends on your quality of listening. Uh, and uh, there are different ways of speaking and listening that are you know, practiced in different environments. So, uh, in monasteries, often people will, as many of you are doing here, they, you would just kind of meditate your way through the Dhamma talk. And it's not that you're not listening, but that the attention is really with uh, continuing to practice mindfulness internally of what's going on. And sometimes even the person gi- giving the Dhamma talk will uh, you know, sit with their eyes closed and speak from a very meditative place. And then in some of our contexts, actually, that's, you know, if, you, if you're giving a lecture somewhere and everybody's sitting with their eyes closed, <laughs> it can be a little discouraging. It like, feels like that's, that's, not a, a, that's a sign of disinterest and so on. But here you have permission to do whatever supports you to listen in a way that's, that's helpful to you. So, um, you know, really to, to, to bear in mind that this is a continuation of your mindfulness practice and of course as we listen to the dharma there's a there's a possibility and a hope that it could be a cause for the arising of the awakening factors that Jeannie was speaking about last night that actually listening to the dharma contemplating the dharma uh, gladdens uh, the mind it encourages us it can clarify things it can reveal things it can arouse our faith so this is this is one hope, but it's also sometimes we have it's our opportunity to practice with the hindrances. You know, we may not feel like listening to a Dharma talk. So one of the formalities also in, in monastic tradition is that you don't give a Dharma talk unless somebody asks you to. So somebody in the in the who's listening has to actually bow and request that a Dharma talk be given. And the job of doing that generally falls to the novices in the monastery. 
and I remember many times of being a novice and really not being in the mood for a Dharma talk and certainly not wanting to listen to a Dharma talk from the teacher who was designated to give that talk in the evening. And yet it was my job to request the Dharma talk. And there's this kind of irony that I'm, I'm requesting the talk and they're giving it to me because I want to listen to the Dharma, but I'm doing that because that's what I'm supposed to do. And you see how it goes. But it's all good grist for the mill. It's all good practice so listening can be a mixed experience and be different for for us on different evenings and then of course we all have different styles as as teachers and different contents and some of them will speak to you in different moments and some some don't and we don't know how the dharma is going to be cooking in us uh, at any one moment. So the suttas are, are full of stories of people who listen to a teaching of the Buddha and awaken on the spot. And we'd love to have that happen, perhaps. <laughs> but you might, have, you might have noticed I'm not the Buddha, so the odds have already gone down considerably. It doesn't mean I wouldn't rule that out. Uh, but I, then I was also reflecting about Ananda, who was the Buddha's attendant for 20 years and probably heard more discourses of the Buddha than any any other living being and yet at the time of the Buddha's death Ananda was still not enlightened it was only uh, sometime afterwards that his waking up moment occurred as his head touched the pillow and and so we really don't know how things are going to cook for us and I have to say that when I hear some of these stories I think actually in some ways I'd rather have been an under to have the opportunity to hear all this hear all this teaching so you know both both ways are good but regardless of Ananda in the time of the Buddha people most people didn't hear very much teaching they would just have the opportunity to hear you know one or two teachings and then they'd go away and practice with what they'd heard so this is kind of what I was saying this morning it's like we don't have to accumulate a whole bunch of maps before we just set out and start exploring the territory and so today I think often we can we can find that there's a information overwhelm that's happening and so to really um, you know not feel that you have to remember and retain everything so Ajahn, Ajahn Chah said that the um, said that the mind is like a tape recorder even when we don't think it's happening it's kind of recording everything and when the time's really ripe what what's needed will come back to you what's useful will come back to you so to just trust that that what you need to retain will will go in and having said that we do you know we do learn best in a variety of ways so if you're somebody who it finds it really helpful in order to to pay pay attention and to to uh, listen to take the odd note then you you can do that of course but just don't worry about um, having to take it all in the thing that I most like that Ajahn Chah said about listening to Dhamma talks is that you should listen with your heart and not with your ears we're listening with our whole being not just our not just our intellect so just letting you know mindfulness be present with you as you listen. And the thing that I'd like to talk about tonight is a bit of the 
territory of practice that can sometimes feel a little intimidating. And I think Sally gave the uh, gave the spoiler that I would be talking about this, which is renunciation. Uh, it came up in Sally's talk on the three forms of intention as one of the the uh, forms of samasankapa or wise or right intention, along with non-ill will and non-harming. Um, and renunciation is also one of the ten paramis, the qualities perfected on the path to awakening. So we can be mindful of the heart's response to the word renunciation right now. What does that conjure up for you? And for me, it's it's a mixture of things. So renunciation, and I, otherwise I wouldn't want to talk about it, is something that I've come to really have a, an appreciation for. But also, even now, it's still something that feels slightly edgy to me. Because it's as, it's as if it's it's an invitation to tug at the limits of my comfort zones. Uh, and also, it can sometimes tip into this sense of, what I should and shouldn't be doing, into our fears of not being good enough or because we're aware that of the things that we're still attached to and we have this ideal that we'd like to be free of all that, but we kind of, we know that we're not there yet. So I was talking with Jeannie earlier in the week and saying, oh, if I really want to talk about something joyful and happy in my next talk, but I really want to talk about renunciation. So I'm hoping that by the end of the talk, at least, you'll have a sense of gladness around the topic of renunciation. And at least you had a really uh, good transmission of joy last night. So renunciation is is really, though, it's about um, developing skillful joy. So maybe to say a bit about what it is and isn't. So in in English, the word renunciation has various connotations, and the the root meaning of renunciation in English is often used in older English in in legal terms and so forth. It's about giving up something that we're entitled to. And that can have connotations of deprivation and austerity. And also in our culture, where there's this ever-increasing surge towards getting more things, getting better things, upgrading, improving ourselves... And that's seen as intrinsically a good thing to have more and better things or more and better experiences. We're we're all victims of this uh, FOMO, of fear of missing out. Uh, So uh, renunciation kind of has a bad rap in the culture. It's also something that we we can fear having imposed on us. It's as if, if we're asked to renounce, somebody's taking away our freedom or maybe there's a fear of being challenged past our limits. Something. And also we can, we can be cautious about confusing renunciation with repression or aversion. And, and that's, uh, that's a, you know, something that can be right to be cautious about. 
So letting go, it, it, it asks us to go against the current of our desires. And it's not new to feel a reluctance around that. So the Buddha himself said that uh, in the early years of his practice, his heart didn't leap up at the thought of renunciation. <laughs> so if your heart is not leaping up with the topic of this talk, you're in good company. So the Pali, though, for, for renunciation, it doesn't have this kind of connotation of giving up what we're entitled to. So the word is nekama, N-E-K-K-H-A-M-A. And it comes from the verb uh, nikamati, which means to leave something behind or to go forth. And it's really speaking about a giving up of our attachment to the sensory world. And it's a voluntary giving up. So Sally gave us one definition in her talk the other day from Bhikkhu Bodhi, which I'll read again, who says that real renunciation is not a matter of compelling ourselves to give up the things that we cherish. It's rather a matter of changing our perspective on the things we cherish so that they no longer bind us. And why would we do that? So we can reflect on the drawbacks of being invested in the world of our senses. And this was really you know, what I was speaking about last week in my talk about tanha, craving. Because what tanha does it, is it converts uh, feeling into suffering. It's like we're trying to quench our thirst by drinking salty water. So there are these three types of craving, karma tanha, the desire for sense pleasures, which is kind of carries in it the basic misunderstanding that if, if I just gain this thing, I'll then be happy. Or bhava tanha, the desire to become, craving to become, that I can find completion, I can complete my sense of self through consuming this or getting this or becoming that. And that just embeds us in, a, in our belief in a sense of lack or insufficiency. And then vibhava tanha, a desire to get rid of things. I have to get rid of this pain. I have to get away from this pain before I can be okay. And it, that traps us in attempts to escape from the pains of past hurts or present discomforts or things that we're fearful about in the future. And we can seek to do that through finding comfort or oblivion in different ways. And if we're in this cycle, then we're caught up in a, a longing and a grief for the world. The opposite of what Greg was describing in talking about the Satipatthana teachings so we're enmeshed in longing and grief for the world and we're abiding in a way that's dependent, not independent. There's no security to our happiness. So when we let tanha run our lives, it's disempowering. And we, it can result in a lot of regret. It can result in harm to, our, to this body. It can reduce mindfulness, obstruct wisdom, can damage our relationships, 
And also I think it makes things that are unpleasant more frightening or irritating. It narrows down the, the sphere of interest in our mind and also it just increases a sense of restlessness and dissatisfaction. And so we can see already that there are benefits to letting go, to uh, renunciation and stepping out of this dynamic. So the Dhammapada says, if by surrendering a slight happiness, one one may realize a great happiness, the wise person should give up the slight happiness, considering the greater one. And from really early in our life, I think we can um, we can recognize that the mind has conflicting pulls in it. So this is how Philip Moffat puts it. He says that we have an instinctive drive to towards gratification, but also that there's to recognize that there's an instinctive yearning for something else, an instinctive movement towards self-restraint, an inclination to participate in something greater than fulfilling your ego's desires. It's a movement to free yourself from the endless cycle of wanting one thing after another and the fear and anxiety that accompany the wanting. And indeed, there are, you know, there are some forms of renunciation that are, are kind of widely accepted and recognized by society. So if you want to train as a doctor, for example, you, know, you have to give up, sacrifice an enormous amount of time and energy to do that, to train in any kind of skill or to um, accomplish something, say, in the realm of athletics or sports. A lot of sacrifice has to go into uh, anything that we accomplish. And um, undoubtedly, all of us have had experience of doing that. And that's kind of regarded as perfectly normal. And there's a lot of renunciation embedded in that. And, And we can notice that these kinds of things and the practice of renunciation in generally bring a sense of self-respect and of freedom from remorse. And that there's a certain sort of dignity in, in being aligned with our values and, and a lessening of our inner conflict and confusion. And also that uh, there can be a sense of relaxation and spaciousness, clarity, and fearlessness and confidence. So when we go against the stream of, of tanha, this is, this is real independence and freedom. Yeah. Different from the kind of independence or freedom which is about asserting my right to have what I want. And renunciation is, is a current that runs through the whole path of practice. So our practice really begins with an inner or outer act of renunciation. So we hear some aspect of the teaching that speaks to us and we set off. There's a willingness to pause on seeking happiness outside of us in worldly ways and to look directly at our experience instead. And this is a big act of letting go. This is actually what it means to to take refuge 
to take refuge in, in the Buddha, in the Dharma, in the, in the power of awareness itself. And the, the, the archetypal expression of that, of course, is the story of the Buddha's renunciation and how he left the familiar comforts of home, which get probably magnified and magnified in the tradition into the, you know, the luxurious palaces and so forth. We don't know exactly how he really lived, but he certainly was willing to you know, put everything on the line and give up everything he knew and to... Uh, go off to search for understanding and for freedom. And we're all doing this uh, as we come on retreat. You know, there's a, a, a trust in the, um, in the power of uh, letting go of the familiar supports and just opening ourselves to what might be discovered in this space of retreat. So this this current of renunciation runs through the whole of our path. It's not just an advanced practice. There's this word chaga or relinquishment, which is one of the words used for the abandoning of tanha. It can also be used to mean generosity, has a sort of various shades of meaning, but this sense of letting go of things. And so this is present, you know, in the right from the beginning of the path, when we think of the path in the way it's often expressed as the three stages of dana and sila and bhavana, that a dana is already entails uh, an act of letting go of things that we cherish, of being willing to, uh, to gladly give them, give them up, give them away to another. When we practice sila, we're also letting go of uh, any inclination, renouncing our impulse to uh, to prioritize our own desires in ways that are harmful to others. And the practice of dana and sila, they, they loosen up clinging and they bring about the conditions for joy to arise. So right from the start, this whole practice is, is kind of um, brewing in a climate of intentionality that can free us from craving and clinging. And the Satipatthana practice, the practice of the four foundations of mindfulness, this comes again and again in this refrain of putting aside covetousness and grief for the world. So we can look on renunciation not as a sense of privation, but as something um, positive and blessed. Uh, in the teachings, it's, it's consistently described as something that's a source of bliss. So for example, regarding the guarding of the sense doors, it says a practitioner on seeing forms with their eye does not grasp at their signs and features they restrain their faculties and they experience within themselves a bliss that is blameless. We talk about, I think Greg talked about monastic life as being renunciant life. He talked about monastics as renunciants and that's one way that we term them. But in the, in the, uh, amongst the practitioners of monastic life, it's referred to as the brahmacharya life 
the ho- which is often translated as the holy life. But of course, Brahma is the same Brahma as in the Brahma Viharas, the divine or sublime abidings. So this renunciant life is a sublime life. You know, there's this uh, sense of happiness and well-being that runs through that kind of training. So we might think of renunciation maybe more in terms of letting go or releasing or freeing, maybe unburdening ourselves or in just this choosing of simplicity or simplification about which we've also spoken. So there's a, a book that uh, uh, we used to to read on the nuns' monastic rules, which are 311 rules for bhikkhunis, which is a lot more than 227 for bhikkhus. But the title of this book was Choosing Simplicity. So in order to choose simplicity, we can be supported by 311 rules. <laughs> But it just the simplicity is something very appealing. I think you will agree, you know. So this renunciation is is about changing our inner relationship to things, and not just you know renouncing things on the outside. And sometimes maybe it would just even consist of a willingness to say yes to the inevitable. So Suzuki Roshi said that renunciation isn't getting rid of the things of this world, but accepting that they pass away. Things are passing away from us all the time. So here's, here's what Pema Chodron has to say about renunciation. She says, renunciation does not have to be regarded as negative. I was taught that it has to do with letting go of holding back. What one is renouncing is closing down and shutting off from life. You could say that renunciation is the same thing as opening to the teachings of the present moment. Renunciation is realizing that our nostalgia for wanting to stay in a protected, limited, petty world is insane. Once you begin to get the feeling of how big the world is and how vast our potential for experiencing life is, then you really begin to understand renunciation. When we sit in meditation, we feel our breath as it goes out. And we have some sense of willingness just to be open to the present moment. Then our minds wander off into all kinds of stories and fabrications and manufactured realities. And we say to ourselves, it's thinking. We say that with a lot of gentleness and a lot of precision. Every time we're willing to let the storyline go, and every time we're willing to let go at the end of the outbreath. That's fundamental renunciation, learning how to let go of holding on and holding back. So I like that, letting go of holding on and holding back. But there, there is also a component of renunciation that's about restraint. 
So Ajahn Suchito says, renunciation means restraining patterns of reactivity that limit our freedom. We restrain in order to realize that which is relaxed. So the skillful practice of renunciation is really uh, requires us to navigate a middle way. And when we re- embark on a practice, I think often there's some, some confusion and mixed motives. So I look back on you know, my choice at the age of 28 to become a nun and the way that I went about that and that there was a lot of uh, enthusiasm and inspiration and a lot of faith. But there was also a certain amount of wanting to get away from the things that were difficult or that I didn't like in my life. So I remember, for example, being really uh, keen and delighted to give away all the books that I owned, all the books that I'd used for my degree and for uh, training as a lawyer and things. There was a lot of aversion in divesting myself of most of my worldly belongings. And it's, that's not really a renunciation. This is just a trying to get rid of things. It's trying to escape from the complexity of overwhelm. And then there's, you know, um, the way that we, we, we pick things up depends a lot on our personality. So I think I was looking for ease partly through controlling circumstances, wanting to live in a situation that was all neat and nicely controlled. We want to control our own behavior or uh, the situation around us and maybe even indirectly the behavior of others. And this is maybe why it's so irksome when we find people in our monastery or on our retreat who don't seem to be following the rules. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. So I remember being completely exasperated by the way that some of the other nuns would wear their robes. It's amazing how many different styles of dress you can evolve within wearing a monastic robe. And it was really nothing to do with me, but there's something about the mind wanting everything to be lined up so that nothing bothers me. Or that sense of thinking that if I just follow the rules perfectly, then everything will be okay. I can be, uh, I will be perfect and then I'll be happy and safe. So whatever yours are, you might discover that you have mixed motives for coming on retreat or even mixed motives for the, the mini choices that we are asked to make during the day. Like, you know, should I make my cup of tea now or should I go and do walking meditation? And we can get kind of wound up in trying to be too perfect and this ideal of uh, renunciation. And if you do find your motives are mixed, you know, don't, don't let that stop you from moving forward. As Andrea said the other day, you know, if we wait for our intention to be completely pure, then we might never move forward. Yeah. So just recognizing that we live in a, we live in a sensory realm and it took the Buddha six years to find his way between um, self-mortification and self-indulgence. 
So sometimes we find ourselves kind of giving up and sometimes we find ourselves trying too hard or beating ourselves up. And I like the image that Jeannie had yesterday of the flock of geese, knowing that the the flock of geese is never flying straight towards its target. It's always slightly off to one side or another, but it course corrects. And this is what we do with our practice. So I, I found it really curious in the suttas when I first came across, there's a, a sutta early on in the, in the middle length discourses of the Buddha that talks about the asavas or the defiled states of mind, uh, sometimes called the, the taints or the outflows. So more another list of unwholesome states of mind, but basically defilements that are to be abandoned in different ways. And there's a group of defilements that are to be abandoned by using. What does that mean to abandon uh, mind states by using? And he's actually there talking about uh, the basic necessities of life, that we don't um, we don't renounce these we learn to use them wisely. So there's these four requisites of clothing, lodgings, food and medicines that we all need in order to uh, live a healthy life. And the monastics are asked to reflect on uh, the use of each of these and using them with wisdom in order to, in a way that uh, enables us to stay healthy and comfortable Uh, and to support practice. So to use them with awareness, compassion and wise reflection. And also not looking around to criticize one another's use of these things. So I'd just like to say, talk a bit about actually cultivating renunciation. And one of the first things I like to reflect on, and one of the reasons that renunciation appeals to me as a topic, is I see there's a very um, strong connection between renunciation and faith, this ability to trust life, to trust our circumstances. And you might notice the degree to which renunciation is already something that you practice and have trust in. There's so many times in the day where we we find ourselves making a skillful choice that goes against the immediate impulse of our desires. When this parami of nekama, of renunciation, is already being developed. So, for example, when I get out of bed in the morning, when I don't feel like it, but I, I get up, when I brush my teeth, despite the fact that I kind of can't be bothered to brush my teeth, when I put on my shoes and go out for a walk and overcome some reluctance to do that. Uh, we, we do this endlessly in our lives, this, this choosing of a skillful desire over the unskillful one. So to just notice that and really take in the benefits of doing that and have some self-respect around it. And I think renunciation requires uh, a leap of faith. There's a willingness there to give up something that we still want to hold on to that has a 
promise of some kind of satisfaction or at least the safety of familiarity and to let go into something unknown. So for me, there's an analogy with riding a bicycle. It's like you can't move forward on the bicycle until you take your hands off the brake and take your feet off the ground and let go and then you can move forward. There's There's already a presence of trust there. And there are many ways in which we've been doing that since the start of the retreat. So just that willingness to surrender to the, to the schedule and the form of the retreat. The willingness to let go of our technology. This uh, putting ourselves in an environment where we don't really have any control over the food that's offered or the time that it's offered. And quite a number of you have have taken the eight precepts and it's been really interesting hearing people in the practice discussions just witnessing the sort of deepening trust and confidence that's there around what you do and don't need in order to be well and happy. We, We often need a lot less than we think we do. So you might you might have noticed moments, maybe many moments of, of or even extended experiences of feeling a lot of ease and contentment and happiness with the simplicity that's already here. Yeah. To notice how choosing simplicity, is the title of that book, really yields tangible benefits. Because I wonder how many of us, except in moments of extreme restlessness or, or distress of some kind, have really missed our phones. Yeah. Or whether you miss wondering what to wear in the mornings. Or putting on makeup, if you're somebody who would often be wearing makeup. Yeah. And then conversely, what are you able to enjoy here that is usually crowded out from your life by the the press of complexity and busyness. So we can see renunciation as a as more of an accessing fullness that's already here than a, as a giving up. And this really, again, is what's meant by abiding independent and not clinging to anything in the world. This ability to just rest back in awareness and and let things come and go. Recognizing that there's nothing to do or to get or to be. Uh, As Sayadaw Utejaniya said, making awareness our home and staying at home. So Caroline Jones, who's the, the resident teacher at the Forest Refuge, she, she speaks about it as being a capacity to stay at home in our own inner richness of presence. 
So what's it like to do that just right now, to taste that? It's going to invite us into a very short mini meditation here. Just resting back into your experience of this moment. What if there were nothing that you had to do right now? Nothing that you had to hold on to. Nothing to get, nothing to get rid of. Nobody that you had to be. If I was completely allowed to be here just as I am right now, how would that feel? Sometimes it could be helpful even to drop into this kind of contemplation some phrases, some uh, renunciation practice phrases like I have enough I am enough maybe even I am blessed I'm good enough, just as I am. I'm good enough to be at peace. I can accommodate what feels unpleasant. So just this ability to rest into a sense of fullness that's already here when we stop going looking for other things. But we can also cultivate nekama parami when there's already some access to contentment and happiness and I'd say not before by playing the edges a bit playing the edges our edges of of what we're really caught up in so finding a simplification practice that goes against the currents of our habits and then being kind of creative and curious around that and seeing what we learn So there may be particular areas of entanglement for you that you'd like to explore. But I really don't recommend doing this in times or when there isn't already some basic sense of contentment and well-being. 
I know Ajahn Suchito once, um, I heard that he described this as being, uh, if we demand renunciation of ourselves of, or, or of students when they're not in a place of well-being, it's kind of like stealing from a beggar. You, know, you need to have some resources before you play the edges of what you might uh, simplify further. So one way that I, I used to, I played with this uh, uh, as a nun, I had a, um, one of my sisters who's still an, an, a nun here in the States, I Ananda Bodhi, we were both in the monastery together in England. And we used to, at a certain period, we used to do this practice together where we would, the, it's not like the way that um, Bante has served his food in the monasteries there. There was often a lot of different people would bring dana and there was a, a big kind of spread of things and you would file down the line and serve yourself into your arms bowl. So you could be quite selective about what you took, especially on days when there were lots of visitors to the monastery and they brought lots of things. And so you would had an opportunity to really choose what you wanted to eat. But sometimes Ananda Bodhi and I, as we were just going up to the queue, we'd tap each other on the shoulder and we'd switch our, bo- our arms bowls around and we would each fill the other's arms bowls. And so you just had total potluck of what the other person put in your bowl and that was your food for the day. And so you're surrendering this uh, option of choosing what you have to eat, which may not sound like a big deal, but if that's one, your one meal for the day, it's quite a can be quite a highlight of your day. <laughs> and then watching that sense of, uh, oh, I saw that thing and I really wanted some of that and she didn't put any of that in my bowl. Or, oh, that's interesting, I would never have chosen that. And just, just seeing all the little free songs of attachment that would arise and pass, it was quite interesting. So lots of opportunities to watch the arising and the fading away of tanha. And that's not something that you can practice here on, on retreat, but there may be other, other ways that you can play. Uh, one thing I like to do on retreat is to take my glasses off when I'm eating, because then I can't really see, I, I can't make up perfect mouthfuls of food because I can't really see what I'm doing. Yeah, so, so surprise of okay I just whatever's coming next that's good because we can get very perfectionist about you know eating our meal in so, such a way as to maximize pleasurable experience can't we? or the practice of deciding to take only what's freely offered so that again is something in in monastic life that's very much part of the training but you can also do that here just like, accepting what's offered, not um, going out looking for a bunch of other stuff. I have a friend who uh, is a, as a practitioner and teacher and also very involved with um, climate activism and so on, and she made a, a, a resolution some time ago, I think she's done it for a, a year or two, to not to buy more than one new thing a month, except for, you know, really sort of essentials of life, but to really um, limit the amount of new stuff that she bought. And I know that was a really kind of challenging and interesting training for her. So think of that sometimes when I see all these UPS parcels arriving on a daily basis. What are we all up to here? (laughs) 
I have to say I'm expecting something tomorrow. I'm not on retreat. (laughs) Or other things like, you know, an, an, an interesting thing to renounce might be the need to be perfect. So I love that poem about imperfection, making falling in love with imperfection that uh, Jeannie shared with us last night. I'm falling in love with my imperfections. The way I never get the sink really clean, forget to check my oil, lose my car in parking lots, miss appointments I've written down. I'm just a little late. And then she talks about the imperfections in her appearance that she's making making peace with and then reflects perfect was all the laundry done and folded all my papers graded the whole truth and nothing but that really struck me the whole truth and nothing but yeah some of us if you're personality like type like me you kind of want to know everything but do we really need to know everything can we let go of our need to have it all figured out, to have all the information, to know everything? What about practicing giving up the idea, the need to be right? That's a big one. To have the last word. And you may say, well, I'm not talking now, so... but." I don't need to have the last word, but I wonder how much internal talk still revolves around being right or having the last word. (laughs) Or, you know, and if we didn't have to be perfect or be right or have the last word, how much self-evaluation could we let go of as well? What about deciding you're going to renounce self-evaluation for a day or so. So I wonder if we, if we played with any of those things, you know, how much thinking might quieten down. Letting go of our story. So we can, you know, we can find interesting ways when we're, when we're feeling resourced enough to play with these edges of renunciation. And I find that the more that I do that, then the more the sense of confidence and fearlessness grows. More of a sense of capacity to trust the unknown. And... This also reminds me of the sense of renunciation as sacrifice. That there's something very beautiful to this sense of renunciation. And the word sacrifice, she means to make something sacred. So in, in letting go, it's this sense of um, tuning into the sacredness of life. And as we do that, our faith grows. So in a way we're already we're already surrendered to nature, aren't we? We're already embedded in this process of nature that is really outside our control. 
And I think we've already, somebody already quoted Ajahn Buddhadasa saying that this practice is about giving back to nature what we've mistakenly appropriated as our own. So I hope if renunciation intimidates you or uh, gives rise to some aversion as an idea that uh, I might have diffused some of that or debunked some of that and just suggesting that it's something not to be feared but to be explored and that it can uh, be a real source of happiness to us. I just want to end uh, with a poem here. This is from the Reverend Sapphire Rose. She let go. Without a thought or a word, she let go. She let go of the fear. She let go of the judgments. She let go of the confluence of opinions swarming around her head. She let go of the committee of indecision within her. She let go of all the right reasons. Wholly and completely, without hesitation or worry, she just let go. She didn't ask anyone for advice. She didn't read a book on how to let go. She didn't search the scriptures. She just let go. She let go of all the memories that held her back. She let go of all the anxiety that kept her from moving forward. She let go of all the planning and of all the calculations about how to do it just right. She didn't promise to let go. She didn't journal about it. She didn't write the projected date in her daytimer. She made no public announcement and put no ad in the paper. She didn't check the weather report or read her daily horoscope. She just let go. She didn't analyse whether she should let go. She didn't call her friends to discuss the matter. She didn't do a five-step spiritual mind treatment. She didn't call the prayer line. She didn't utter one word. She just let go. No one was around when it happened. There was no applause or congratulations. No one thanked her or praised her. No one noticed a thing. Like a leaf falling from a tree, she just let go. There was no effort, there was no struggle. It wasn't good and it wasn't bad. It was, it was what it was and it is just that. In the space of letting go, she let it all be. A small smile came over her face. A light breeze blew through her and the sun and the moon shone forevermore.
So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.